I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Magic, metaphor, and mystery. Rowan Atkins, better known as Mr. Bean, does a hilarious and slightly profane reading of this passage called The Amazing Jesus. And so imagine him clerically gowned with a very gothic organ music playing in the background as he enters the pulpit, and it begins like this. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Our lesson this evening is taken from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2, beginning at the first verse. And on the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and it came to pass that all the wine was drunk. And the mother of Jesus came to Jesus and said, They have no more wine. And Jesus said unto the servants, Fill six water pots with water. And they did so. And when the steward of the feast tasted from the water of the pots, it had become wine. And he knew not whence it had come. But the servants did know. And they applauded loudly in the kitchen. And they said unto the Lord, How the heck did you do that? And inquired of him, Do you do children's parties? And the Lord said, No. And the reading goes downhill from there. And the humor besides entertaining us, and it also confronts us with the nuance and the nuisance regarding the magical and the miraculous. And so my desire today is to reflect some of what the writer of John is seeking to portray to his audience and his culture and then move to what this passage could be asking of us today in the midst of our persecution, pandemic, and political and interpersonal partisanship. John is unique from the other Gospels. UEFM students will be very aware of that. For example, there are no parables in John, no genealogy, no birth narratives, no baptism by John, no mention of Jesus' temptations, no transfiguration and ascension, no appointing of the disciples. Christ is never seen praying in John. Rather, he is usually speaking. He is never mentioned as the son of David, and no reference about the coming of the Son of Man is made in John. The word repent is not used in the gospel. Neither do we see the word forgive. No mention of demons. And John is the only place in the gospels where this story, this miracle is mentioned. And this suggests to me that the book is addressed to a different or a broader audience than the other gospels. Now John, or the writer of John, like the other historical authors of the Gospels, is a Jew. However, the other Gospels were written primarily to the Jewish population. John is writing to a dual audience. His main objective is to introduce the subject of Jesus to the Greek culture in a way that they could relate. And yet he doesn't want to frustrate his Jewish sentiments. 
And so the significance of this story holds very different thoughts and symbols for a Jewish mentality than it does for a Greek mentality, and so perhaps also for a Canadian 21st century mentality. And everything that John says, everything that John says, happens on two levels. There is often a very simple surface story that anyone can understand and retell. But there is always a deeper meaning available to anyone who is a genuine seeker, an inner knowing. So, for example, for the Jewish mentality, there are six water pots. And Jesus turns the water in those pots into wine. Now, for the Jews, seven is the absolute complete and perfect number. Six would sound incomplete, unfinished to them, imperfect. And yet at a deeper level, the six water pots stand for all the imperfections, limitations of the Jewish law. And Jesus is the one who comes to do away with that imperfection or incompleteness of the law and transform it into the new wine of grace. And so John is suggesting that when Jesus joined the party of humanity, God turned the imperfection of the law into the perfection of grace, which the writer in the book of Hebrews suggests was always the reality hidden in the law, the divine intention. And we could say that things had gone to pot, but the water has turned to wine. Sorry about that. And all the people groaned. The Greeks held none of that part of their, in their belief system, but they actually had similar stories of turning water into wine in their mythology. In Greek mythology, Dionysus is the god of wine and is highly revered. And during the festival to Dionysus, three empty kettles are taken by the priests into the sanctuary of Dionysus in the presence of the citizens. And then the doors of the sanctuary are sealed with the priestly seal. Next day, the citizens and priests check the seals to make sure they are not broken, and they enter the sanctuary only to find the kettles full of wine. And so in seeking to explain Jesus to the Greeks, it is as if John is saying, and here I quote William Barclay, you have your stories, your legends about your gods. They are only stories, and frankly, I think you know that. But Jesus has come to do what you have always dreamed your gods could do. He has come to make the things you long for real. What did hold true for both the Jewish and a Greek audience is the awareness that this is a lot of wine. There is something here that points to a deeper meaning than the magic or miracle of just turning water into wine. Perhaps I shouldn't use the word just. Don't forget in John, every detail is significant. There are six water pots. Every one of these held between 20 and 30 gallons of wine. That's up to 180 gallons of wine. That's around 2,400 bottles. And that after they've already run out of their available wine. Now, doesn't that tell us that John is saying this story is about more than crude literalness? 
And so to the Jews, John is saying, Jesus has come to turn the imperfection of the law into the perfection of grace. And to the Greeks, he is saying, Jesus has come to do what you only dreamed your gods could do. And let's not be too hard on the Greeks for all their gods. There was more going on here than just idolatry. They tended to create a god out of anything that was mysterious to them. And this fit their worldview. For them, the seen world was not the real world. To them, the unseen world was the real world. And John beautifully addresses their worldview in the first chapter preceding our story when he talks about the word, the logos, the primary principle of the universe. And for the Greek philosopher Plato, everything in the seen world is imperfect or incomplete. Only a representation of the real thing that is hidden in the unseen world. The form of the real thing exists outside of our world. And if you took a Philosophy 100 course, you know his allegory of the cave, where he sees humanity as prisoners trapped in a cave, chained in a cave, looking only in one direction. And behind them is a hole in the wall of the cave, and things are passing by the light that is that hole, projecting them on the wall, back wall of the cave. And all we see is the shadow of what is happening, what is real, what is the form in the unseen world. We see this Greek idea portrayed in Corinthians, where the writer says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. So think of a table in our world. How many different representations of tables are there in the world? Round, square, oblong, freeform, large, small, all made with different materials. And yet somehow we recognize all of them as tables. Because there is an ideal form of a table outside the cave, outside of our seen world. And in making Jesus the Logos who comes from God, John is saying that Christ is the Logos, the ultimate form of divine incarnated in the seen world. Christ, as the Logos, is ultimate reality. And now in chapter 2 in this miracle story, he is telling us that there is enough of this Logos wine for everyone. This ultimate reality is poured out in every culture and worldview, Greek or Jew. And this is just some of the content which this story would have been heard by the Greeks. So some thoughts to consider in holding this story in our time. Listen to this thought-provoking quote from the late Dr. Richard Halverson, longtime pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and chaplain of the United States Senate. And I quote, Christianity, he says, began in Palestine as a fellowship, a relationship, and it then moved to Greece and became a philosophy, a way to think. And afterwards, it moved to Rome and became an institution, a place that you go, and then to Europe, where it became a culture, a way of life. And finally, it settled in America, where it has become an enterprise or a business. A lot of food for thought there. 
And John is writing in a time when this loose association of house churches, fellowships, was becoming more a philosophy in this Greek culture. And since this time, we have moved through institutional phases, cultural phases, and an enterprise phase. Perhaps our concept of church is somewhat defined by a combination of all of these phases. And I find myself wondering if that is some of what is happening in institutional Christianity today. That which is eroding, being torn down, or even dying, taking new forms, is being invited back to a fellowship priority. And I find myself asking how what we are going through now might be inviting us to realize that fellowship that is at our core, a shift. A shift from going to church to being church. Think about it. When a fellowship becomes a philosophy, it easily becomes just a way to think. And the fellowship aspect is sacrificed to right thinking, a brain on a stick with no heart. When a fellowship becomes an institution, it easily becomes a place to go competing with all the other places to go, a commodity of faith. Did you go to church today? I wish my children went to church. Why won't my spouse go to church with me? Richard Rohr, the Catholic, says that when he was taking confession, the most common confession was, forgive me, Father, for I have not been to, uh, I have not been to confession in two months. And Rohr says, when did this become the venial sin? And when a church becomes a culture, it primarily becomes a place that reinforces our way of living as the ideal. It becomes colonial and political, and the love of diversity is diminished, and the world is continuously broken into haves and have-nots. And often we discover holy wars. And then when a church becomes an enterprise or business, its focus becomes the bottom line. What do we call a body that markets love? Perhaps we call it prostitution. But Christianity has never divested itself totally of its relational fellowship body identity in any of those transitions. Within each container, whether philosophy, institution, culture, and enterprise called church, there has always existed the waters of baptism that eucharistically fed the fellowship with this wine of transformation. Only the container has changed. The contents have always held this transformational power. And yet we so easily become preoccupied with serving the containers. And once again, John reminds us to make the church about the wine, the relationships, the fellowship, the love, not just the philosophy, not just the institution, not just the culture, not just the enterprise. All of these are merely containers. And when the church becomes the wine, 
we find the philosophical, the institutional, the cultural, and even the enterprise aspects serve the contents, the relational aspects, the fellowship, the body. We call this ongoing transformation. Every day we see water change to wine, if we but look. And this is our calling in the Church. No matter what we are experiencing in the philosophical, institutional, cultural, or business of the Church. John isn't telling us something, a story of something. John isn't just telling us a story of something Jesus did once and never did again. This is something that Christ is doing forever and eternally, things that Christ continues to do today. Today is then John wants us to see that whenever the Christ reality enters our lives, there comes a new quality that is like turning water into wine. And all of this happens in the mess and mayhem of our everyday life, especially those parts of our life we have no control over. Wanting control, we often retreat to our philosophical certainties or our institutional fortresses, defending our cultural way of life and assuming God is blessing us if our bottom line shows a surplus. We today have our messes, as did the early Church, things beyond our control. These range from the significant to the silly. We bicker over vaccination mandates, COVID restrictions, overwhelmed with smoke in the summer, fight over the lack of toilet paper, heat waves, flooding, political finger-pointing, protesting our loss of freedom and government control over us, or storming capitals midst a world of plenty whose priority seems to be finding new and more effective ways for annihilation and fear. But remember, the mess of humanity was much more extreme during the time this story was written. Their context was filled with disaster, with chaos. Their temple had just been destroyed. They were persecuted. Jews against Christians, Greeks against Christians, Romans against Christians. There was foreign domination, and often they were meeting in hiding. They certainly weren't meeting in a beautiful sanctuary like this. They didn't meet in church. They met in secret, two or three here or there. And yet the transformational wine of grace spread like wildfire contained by the Spirit. Just think of the destruction of the temple and what that had meant. Put yourself into the context of our sanctuary as you listen to these words from Josephus describing the destruction of the temple and the actual government control they lived under. He says, As the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. 
The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unharmed, butchered wherever they were cut. And round the altar, heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured rivers of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. It was with all this conflicted and pandemic background that the Gospel of John was written. And the first story is about a wedding. And a wedding is about love. Love in the midst of chaos. Now this perhaps is something that connects both groups, Jewish and Greek, and perhaps us, offering a daily awareness of water being changed to wine right there in the midst of our current lives, as a fellowship, as a relationship, as the body of Christ, the ultimate reality, being, loving, action in the world. This wine is the ideal of love, seeking to operate in a world that is far from ideal. Its container is actually the human heart. And wherever love is given and received, it's like water being turned to wine. So John isn't just telling us about a story of something Jesus miraculously did once but doesn't do anymore. This is something that Christ is forever and eternally doing, today, every day, in the midst of the mess of our lives. He is wanting us to see that when Christ enters our lives as the ultimate reality, there comes a new quality of life that is like water being turned into wine. And they will know we are Christ followers by our philosophies, by our institutions, by our culture, by our prosperity. No, they will know we are Christians by our love. So let's drink up. Amen.